Welcome to Crowdfunding Uncut. This is the place where incredible project creators show you how they launch their products online using the world's largest crowdfunding engines, such as Indiegogo and Kickstarter. Hey guys, welcome to episode 51 of the Crowdfunding Uncut podcast. I am your host, Kirsten. And today I wanted to switch gears a little bit because one thing, as I'm getting more heavily involved in specifically tech and hardware startups, I'm noticing that a lot of crowdfunding campaigns, they fulfill late, they underestimate costs, and they realize that they've signed up for a lot more than they bargained for after the campaign ends and they've received like the customer money from Kickstarter and Indiegogo. And hardware startups on the surface are great in theory because you can move a lot of volume, but what a lot of startup founders underestimate is the cost of development. And the more that I've actually gotten involved with product design, well, not product design, I don't do that, but <laughs> like campaign management is I'm realizing that if you want to set yourself up for a great foundation to build a good business, you have to be at a certain point in your crowdfunding journey before you actually launch. And this episode is specifically if you are looking at launching a hardware or a tech or a physical product and getting involved in manufacturing where we're actually bringing on specialist today dylan horvath from cortex design uh it's a product design firm in toronto that is award-winning they've had clients win the international dyson award as well as many many other things and uh dylan is a specialist in helping companies pre-crowdfunding actually go from concept design all the way through to manufacturing and fulfillment and I really feel that this is an episode you guys need to be listening to to answer your question of what stage in your journey of your product development journey should you be at before you crowdfund because the reality is that the later campaigns are the more campaigns that don't fulfill it's really hurting our backers and it will give crowdfunding a bad reputation and so what we need to be doing to protect the ecosystem is making sure that we're doing our due diligence by having our costs figured out and be able to estimate a realistic goal and be able to to um, forecast certain costs so that long term we're going to be able to deliver a better product and have better margins and have better budgeting around that so Dylan I'm just so excited to have you on the show today well, thanks very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So today's going to be a heavy episode. Um, we're focused not on actual crowdfunding, but it's everything before crowdfunding. And just so we can understand a little bit more about how Cortex works, uh, how like when I come to you with a product idea, can you walk me through what suite of services Cortex offers? Sure. Um, yeah, Cortex Design is a, uh, a full-service firm. We do everything from initial industrial design sketching, visualizations, uh, problem definition, all the way through to um, engineering detailing, design for manufacturability, and we will actually get the product made for you and deliver it to you as well. So that's a lot of things for uh, one firm to do. Um, we generally work with a small number of large clients over, over the course of, of the year uh, to work on these sort of uh, marquee projects and, um, and get, them to the next, get them to the next level. Now, do you handle everything in-house or do you have manufacturer and fulfillment partners that you work with? Yeah, we absolutely have manufacturing and fulfillment partners. So this developed over 
the course of uh, many years of running the business, one of the pain points that I found with, with a lot of our customers was we were trying to teach them new ways of, of doing things and, and open up their eyes of the possibilities of what can be done with, with product design. But we were running into these barriers where they said, well, this is impossible to tool or it's impossible to make. Um, you'd have uh, gate holders or, or gatekeepers in, in the engineering department that would like to mitigate risk. And uh, mitigating risk is a great way to get nothing done. So um, we started looking for the vendors that would, would work with us in, in these sort of tricky volumes in those sort of early startup stages where the, um, the initial orders may not be all that attractive and, and the difficulty of the products may be very high. Um, so those types of vendors are hard to find. Um, they are something that we can offer because we have these relationships with them now. So yeah able to problem solve actually with our vendors um, as opposed to trying to push a design down onto uh, onto a supply chain or or you know finish a pretty picture and then pitch it over the fence and say good luck hope you hope everything goes well in manufacturing which is what a lot of crowdfunding campaigns do unfortunately yeah well you know a lot of a lot of crowdfunding campaigns um, the the way you treat a hardware project is very different from the way you would treat a software project. And most people don't have um, very much experience in, in developing hardware, and it can't be treated the same way as a, as a, as a software project. When you look at um, venture funding and things like that, the, you know, the vast majority of funding out there is for software-as-a-service kind of business models, and um, you have these... Uh, brilliant people that are able to write code and most of the hardware projects that we get involved with there's there's a fair amount of code involved as well so you have these teams that have these this technology expertise but then when it comes to uh, cutting steel on a on a manufacturing room floor uh, it's a completely different world completely different set of constraints yeah now I have so many questions for you but before we get into the nitty-gritty how did you, I just want to know like how did you get to where you are today how did you get into product design Cortex. Sure. Yeah. Uh, how how long do we have? <laughs> well, do you, do you want the thirty second or the? <laughs> I want the five minute version of who Dylan sure, Horvath sure. is. I'll, um, so my yeah my my family was uh, liberal arts background. You know my dad was a a, a teacher and a, a philosophy graduate, and you know everybody everybody else in my family was very um, arts oriented, and uh, I was always the oddball out. I you know I was the guy that to um, take apart record players. You know, I remember when I um, learned that you could take things apart with a screwdriver rather than a hammer. That was a big learning oh, moment good. for me. You don't destroy uh, the thing you're trying to open. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so, you know, I always like taking things apart and, and um, learning how to put them back together. And um, that was that was my whole, my whole upbringing. And I got really involved in robotics and I, I loved making things, uh, collect, having a collection of in, inanimate parts on a table being able to put those together and create something that would do something on its own without your intervention. So I love that technology. But um, when, so I went to university for engineering, uh, University of Waterloo for systems design engineering, really because it matched my interest in um, robotics, I thought, the most at the time. This was back in uh, 92, I guess, when I, when I started my degree. And um, so all, all through university, it was, it was more robotics and automation. And, and uh, my 
co-op terms when, when I was young were at some automation firms. So I learned a lot about software and electronics and building hardware and, and uh, working with people on the shop floor. Um, I always liked being in machine shops and actually turning metal and, and turning metal into the parts for the, for the robots. I loved all that stuff, but there was always something kind of missing. There was the, the human side was, was missing. And uh, after graduating, I went to um, the University of Michigan to um, do my master's. And I was working in the mobile robotics lab and did a startup, a robotics startup after that. And I was just starting to lose the love of um, the minutia of, of dealing with all of the engineering problems. And there wasn't really this, this human contact. You know, building robots was a very uh, anti-human thing at the time. Um, and uh, I, I went home for Christmas one year and, and met an old um, friend of mine who had gone to the Ontario College of Art and Design for uh, packaging design, which blew me away. I'd never heard of like somebody doing like packaging design. And she said, well, you know, for these robots, you should really look at hiring an industrial designer to define the look and feel of, of these things. And I said, what industrial design was that? Look and feel. And, and so then I started exploring this and I hired a couple of industrial designers and I got super passionate about the work that they were doing, forming this human connection between the technology that I was interested in and the people that actually use it. And that bond, I realized, was actually what I was really passionate about. How do you relate technology to humans? And how do you solve problems with technology that are human problems? How do you make people's lives better? How do you give them these moments of delight? Um, these uh, newfound capabilities that they that they don't have right now, but make that seamless. Make it about the person, not about the technology. So I started um, looking for ways to get more and more involved in design. Uh, by by now it was uh, ninety nine, and I was I started Cortex Design then as actually a way to build up a portfolio of, of projects to go back to school. Um, I wanted to do a master's in product design. Uh, in the end, I just started hiring people that were able to do it better than me instead and uh and slowly building up a firm to do the kind of work that i wanted to do here in toronto that's so cool i find like i'm so envy not jealous but the one part of my family that i didn't inherit that i would kill to inherit is my dad's a product and software design engineer and then my sister is literally designing jet engines for air canada like they got <laughs> the engineering top of the physics class and me well there's me where as soon as physics hit i barely passed and <laughs> as soon as like math and motion started getting together with like advanced calculus like i would get high grades in math and calculus but mix that with physics i just i could never <laughs> i can never do it and so i'm in awe of engineers and you being able to match the human marketing element to real applicable build yourself solutions. Mm. Yeah. So cool. Well, that, that became very exciting for me too. When, when I, I started to realize that, um, you know, all of this tech that, that I was fascinated by and interested in, um, I could apply it to, um, a discipline that was actually much more human based. Yeah, no, that's just, Incredible. And it's cool that you've found the human side to manufacturing so that you're not lost in manufacturing anymore. It's more, mm. okay, what does human want? 
let's build something that people will love and want to buy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, the manufacturing is just, um, it's adult Lego, right? You get to design your own pieces and, and watch them be put together and, you know, watch the, watch the tools for the parts be put together. Um, it's a, it's a fascinating process and the people that are involved in that process are, are often really interesting, intelligent people. And, um, you get to work with a lot of, uh, really talented people, but, you know, getting my hands dirty on a, on a manufacturing floor. Yeah. Cause, uh, Dylan and I actually met at a crowdfunding talk in Toronto and, is really cool to hear because you've been part of how many crowdfunding projects now? Like, um, quite a few. I think, yeah, like seven or eight now. Yeah, it's just incredible. And like, you know, um, do you have a portfolio on your website? Um, actually, the um, talk that we gave, I think, is on YouTube. So if you do a search for Dylan Kirsten Cortex, um, you'll probably hit upon it. Uh, <laughs> it was a venture lab. Venture Lab Talk, right? Cool. Yeah, I'm going to link to that in the show notes. But um, where can people find more information about Cortex, by the way? What's your website? Our website is www.cortex-design.com. So the dash in between Cortex and design. Yeah. And the great part, most of my audience is split between, I mean, international audience, but majority uh-huh. is U.S.-based. Do you ever work with companies outside of Toronto? We do, yeah. Actually, our our two biggest customers are are both outside of Toronto. One in one in New York, and one in um, Kentucky. Oh, amazing! Okay, what kind of projects are those? Um, we make uh, so in late twenty fourteen, we became the uh, design firm for Cloud DX, which is a, a New York based company. Uh, medical device manufacturer. They have an existing blood pressure cuff that is cloud connected and provides uh, doctors and patients with all sorts of additional metrics beyond blood pressure. Um, they were competing in an X Prize competition called the Qualcomm Tricorder X Prize competition. And uh, this was to create, actually, really to revolutionize the delivery of healthcare um, globally. And um, we are now one of seven finalists. I say we, we were the design firm, but I really feel a lot of ownership over this, uh, over this project. Um, one of seven finalists globally um, competing to deliver this doctor in a box, uh, a real working medical tricorder that's able to diagnose 13 different chronic health conditions and uh, monitor all five human vital signs continuously and, and stream those to a cloud server, uh, all operated independent of a healthcare professional. That's incredible. Because we're, you know, there's so much wearable technology coming on the market these days. Have you seen the ring that is keeps track of calorie count, your sleep tracking, all that stuff, and it just gives you live data, whereas this device you're talking about more and now analyzes the data to tell you what it could mean for your health. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, there's there's a lot of products out there that say they can do things, but um, the uh, sometimes getting the smoke and mirrors cleared away from what what's uh, what's listed out there publicly is a is a task in and of itself. Oh man, yeah, I get it. So let's. Um, what is your favorite part of the process from concept design and the initial sketch right through to fulfillment? Oh, well, geez, I don't think I have a favorite part. Um, there's, there's things that I love about each, each stage of the process and things that I don't like about each stage of the process too. But, um, I think 
if there is one section of the project that I really could say stands out and, and that I love, it's it's the it's the initial problem definition and figuring out what product is going to supply the solution. Um, we we try to avoid projects where it's a, a solution in search of a problem. We really focus on the problem itself. What is it that this customer is trying to achieve, and how can we apply technology to that problem? So. Um, yeah, that's always a very exciting stage. And ha not okay. Let's let's get into um, yeah. Let's get into that. I think because I'm just trying to figure out the best way to do this because you have we have so many different steps and mm. part of it. So when somebody comes and when you're figuring out problem solution, how do you validate what the right problem solution fit is? before you go to the final drawing board. Mm -hmm. Yeah, with a lot of times clients come to us because they've hit a wall of some sort. So um, they realize that their prototyping methods aren't um, up to snuff and they, they, they need to have a better supply chain or they, they realize that their design approach is, is not working the way they wanted it to and they, they need some additional expertise or, or they want to accelerate their, their product design cycle and uh, they don't have the staff on board to, um, to do that and they want to um, hire us for that. Um, the very often we get introduced to a product that's already had some rough prototypes made. Um, for example, clipless, uh, clipless was a, a cell phone clip. Um, the, the entrepreneur that was behind that, uh, product had reached a point where they knew what they wanted and they, they had a, a whole lot of the work done, but, um, it was just something as simple as a, a release mechanism for, for the magnets. They just couldn't, their, their approach wasn't, um, wasn't appealing. And so, you know, product like that, we look at, well, okay, if you're going to, if you're going to operate this device, how would a person ideally want to operate it? How are they going to touch it? How are they going to try to, uh, you know, interact with it? And, yeah. yeah. So then we start visualizing that, um, initially with, with, uh, with sketches and, and 3d rendering. And then we start to drill into the, the physical prototypes. And um, prototyping is one of those things that um, I think a lot of companies don't realize how much time it takes and, and how much value there is in it. It's also a thing that's very difficult to predict how many iterations of a prototype you're going to need to um, arrive at the, at the perfect solution. Yeah, um, the, the companies that we've been most successful with um, are companies that really see the value of that prototyping and um, are comfortable with assigning a pretty big budget to it um, because yeah those those physical prototypes uh, are are very important for fleshing out your use cases and we stage those out there's all sorts of, dif of different prototypes there's uh, looks like prototypes which uh, do nothing but look like a final product there's you know nothing nothing in, inside them yet that that would make them work there's um, engineering prototypes that don't look anything like the the final uh, final products, but on a bench top, they um, the electronics function, for example. Um, and then there's like the looks like works like prototypes at at the very end, um, which are the most expensive prototypes, of course, um, that try to pull everything together. So you've detailed out a lot of the uh, the workings and and the form and uh, are pulling those together. So on average. 
I understand that some prototypes would be easier to develop than others, like Clipless was a beast of a project from my understanding of our past conversations. But on average, how long would you say it takes to create a prototype from like a fully functional working prototype from zero mm-hmm. to sketch to finish? Yeah. I would say it's, you know, it's rare for those uh, to take less than six to eight months which is something you know, a, lot of, a lot of companies don't like to hear. And uh, when you don't have that kind of time budgeted, um, that's a red flag for us. Um, if, if a company comes to us and says that they want to have something in production in three months, right away we know that um, this is not going to be a good fit. Um, it usually takes three months once, once a design is done just to get uh, tools up and running. Um, so the... Uh, as, as fast as the world is moving and, and as uh, fast as the tools are to, uh, to visualize and design, um, hardware is still slow. Hardware is still a slow process. Um, so it's something that, that people should be aware of. I find, too, that there's this misunderstanding with crowdfunding where like, I, I know from the leads that I get, and because you're, you know, you've done crowdfunding campaigns yourself, you probably get these, too, where people come to you and they say, well, I want to raise money to develop a prototype. So Mm -hmm. in my mind, there are two different kinds of races you can do. You can do one to develop a prototype, and then you could do one to do first run of manufacturing when you have the prototype figured out. Mm -hmm. What are some of the red flags that can come up when someone just wants to develop money for or raise money for prototype? Mm -hmm. Well, raising money for a prototype, um, it's, for one thing, I think it's difficult for um, the audience to see the value of, um, of financing those things. So those tend to be at the, the lower end of the, the budget scale um, when, when what you're showing is uh, not even a prototype. Um, and then once you raise money for a prototype, uh, the, the prototyping process itself can be, can be quite um, time-consuming and expensive. Um, in fact, uh, time-consuming-wise, that's that's probably the least predictable part of the um, the product design process. Um, and we tend we our our belief is that unless you're making something that's quite tangibly better, different, um, solves a new pain point, um, it's probably not something that you want that a sort of owner-operator, independent uh, startup company with no um, established business is not really going to want to do. So you want to be that different, that different product and, and that new capability and that uh, new process. And those things haven't been done before, right? Like your product or the products that we work on have never been done before. It's innovative. So, yeah. It's, so the, the yeah. predicting what your problems are going to be is very difficult at the initial stage. So you have a whole lot of risk, um, especially with, uh, with your timeline when you're right at that beginning. So, you know, you're trying to mitigate risk as you go, go along. If, if that risk mitigation is under the uh, watchful eye of, a, of you know, 2,000 people on a crowdfunding campaign, it can be a diff- difficult place to operate from. Yeah, and I find, too, that you can destroy your reputation if you... Because I see a lot of businesses, they'll launch product one on crowdfunding and then successfully deliver and then continuously use that platform to build an audience and get pre-orders for subsequent products. Like Pavlok mm-hmm. is doing that um, as an example, or Forever Spin, um, 
in in Toronto. Like there's so many that are doing that, but you can really kill that opportunity if you screw up your first campaign by not delivering on time because then your backers for campaign two are going to say, well, you delivered three years too late. Why Mm -hmm. should we trust you? You Mm -hmm. clearly don't plan ahead. So Mm -hmm. it's it's tough because startups need to raise money to do software or hardware development, but it costs a lot of money to get the prototype to a point where backers are going to be comfortable enough to back it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that um, most most companies would do better to do a friends and family raise uh, fundraise first before doing a before doing a crowdfunding campaign, so that they can establish whether or not they actually have a, a product that that's worth that's worth commercializing. Um, once you once you have something and you can really play around with it, that um, that to me seems like a better uh, time to get into into crowdfunding. Once you have a lot of the risk removed and um, the some of the some of the initial costing exercises done, um, so you have an idea of what what's coming up beyond beyond the prototype functioning. Yeah, I really like your idea of doing a friends and family raise um, because essentially you can use that money to develop a prototype, and then once you have a semi functional prototype that you can show in a video and you can get user testimonials and you're almost ready to manufacture that almost builds a stronger case for you with crowdfunding. It does. Absolutely. Um, but there's still a lot of risk even after that prototype is done because, you know, as, as, uh, most, most startups know when, when you're showing your prototype, there's, there tends to be some problems still left in, in that, uh, in that prototype that, you know, you're not showcasing necessarily in your startup video, uh, or in your crowdfunding video. Um, and those things can really come back to haunt you when you're trying to deliver on a, on a timeline. And would you, um, so I read this article on, uh, hold on, what is it on, uh, the bolt blog and may bring up a really few good points with the misconception around crowdfunding is people assume that you raise money it's and it's the same thing as raising vc or angel investment but you're actually not you're getting money for pre-orders which is essentially putting your business in debt to you collect customer money for product development and for manufacturing of that but what it sounds like and just to build on on what you've been saying is there is more money even after you've raised and created a working prototype there's still so much money that needs to go in for creating iterations and fixing the bugs as we say mm-hmm. yeah there can be bugs and then there can be fundamental problems um that's uh, like fundamental engineering problems that um you haven't solved in the prototype um it's important to be aware of where those where those problems lie and how big those problems are um before before launching um the uh for example power consumption you know power consumption is a huge one if everybody wants to have you know these tiny little devices that sort of disappear and um work all day and um and you know achieve some function um power is still probably the number one product killer <laughs> of uh of the things that we work on where people just haven't really anticipated um how much how much power is is going to be required to fulfill a particular function and in the prototype 
you know, you may have something that is designed to work all day and only works for 20 minutes. Uh, if you can't bridge that gap, um, it's going to kill your product. And, and uh, you know, you know this, but you'd launch anyway thinking, uh, well, I'll, I'll figure that problem out. Yeah. So what it's in summary, you should be as far into the process as possible. I wouldn't ever recommend a raise for prototype or even a raise based on a sketch because you can even raise some money and realize you're you need quarter million dollars more just to fulfill or deliver and so you're gonna need more funding anyways mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah yeah it's a tricky thing because you know really um the the promise of crowdfunding is being able to develop a product and have um have a community of backers that um will you know advocate for you and help you in a lot of ways um, and without having to give up equity in your company. So, you know, those are the positive things, but um, there's, I think still a lot of uh, misconception and, and poor positioning by, by companies who that, you know, they're trying to, they're trying to raise as much as possible in a crowdfunding campaign. So their positioning may not be entirely, I don't know, truthful. Uh, and, um, uh, about how ready they are or or how or misleading yeah or how how far how far through the the process uh uh they are um and you know i, I would say that that we've experienced this with um with the campaigns that we've been involved in too where um the all the problems weren't worked out at the time the the crowdfunding was launched and you know those those problems get hit in uh in the production stage um but at the same time, you know, people who are who are participating in crowdfunding should be aware that there's a reason why why it's being crowdfunded, right? Like, there's these are companies that don't have um, backing uh, in a lot of cases. You know, they don't have other sources of income, um, so they don't have a big safety net. Um, and uh, crowdfunding is really designed for those early stage companies. You're not buying a product. You are buying the rights to be the first to get a product, um, essentially, and uh, that will hopefully come. Um, but you know, in some cases, uh, it never does. So you you should be sort of aware that you're rolling the dice as a backer. Yeah. Now, before we get into just a couple questions about manufacturing and finding good fulfillment partners like you have, um, I just want to say that part of the beauty, even though a firm I, working with a firm like yours comes with a price tag, the benefits to that is like, so uh, Dylan and I are working together on a project that's launching in the fall. And it was really nice to be able to walk into a design firm and have them estimate at a high level what the cost per unit and fulfillment is going to be. So as opposed to the inexperienced startup person thinking, oh yeah, we can probably get this done all in for $30, $40 a unit, which is totally guesstimating and could be very wrong. Dylan has gone through this several times and he knows how to estimate costs properly, which can help you with forecasting and reduce your risk longer term financially. Yeah, hopefully. So. I mean, we we um we we do have a fair amount of experience with with this sort of thing. Um, the um yeah, the costs are you know the costs are always higher than than an owner or operator wants to hear. Uh, but without those without those budgets reserved, um, it's very difficult to to make it across the finish line. Yeah. So once we have product development figured out, you then 
go to the manufacturing side and very early in this this talk you mentioned that you have a way to get around the minimum order quantities and even for me I would struggle to if if I were trying to sell on Amazon or source new product myself that is always the number one concern that manufacturers seem to have is they want to guarantee that they can make money on runs so they have that minimum order quantity I'd love to know if you have any advice for finding a good fulfillment partner mm. Um, well, I think one of the nice things about working with, with us is we have an established supply chain already, uh, and, and relationships with those vendors. So, you know, part of what you're, what you're buying when you're going to a design firm like ours or, 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 um, another one, um, you're buying those relationships or you're paying for those relationships. Um, if you're establishing those relationships yourself, I think it's very important, um, so, A, if you're, if you're going uh, with uh, offshore manufacturing, which most people should do, um, you need to go there. You need to, you need to see the people face-to-face. -face. Um, you need to build those relationships because the, you know, these are all humans. And actually, offshore relationships, I would say, are even more important than they are onshore. Um, the North American way of doing business um, is different than the Asian way of doing uh, doing business. The um, here we expect to be able to email in a purchase order and um, get that product fulfilled, and you know almost almost not even see the people. Um, I've found that when you're working with um, Chinese manufacturers, that um, them knowing who you are and what kind of person you are, and that you know you've sat down and you've had tea with them, and you've had lunch with them, and you you know made. Some and, and uh, developed a bit of a rapport and relationship and talked about what your objectives are long-term as a company. Um, those types of things are just as important as the dollars and cents that you're, that you're bringing to them. Um, another thing that we've really worked on or that I've worked, really worked on in developing our relationships is being very uh, upfront, honest, and frank with them about um, the likelihood of any one project going into production. Um, I've you know, everybody wants to say, okay, well, tell them it's going to be uh, 10,000 units a month and then they're going to give you, you know, better pricing and, and uh, you know, they'll, they'll carry some of those costs. That's great. You know, it can work uh, once. And uh, if, if you aren't able to deliver, now you've burned that relationship now. Um, we're looking for, you know, we look to build long-term relationships with, with our vendors and make sure that every one of the projects that we work with them on is one that makes sense for them that they're not rolling dice on any project and, uh, you know, investing their time and engineering and resources uh, on something that isn't um, profitable for them. Yeah, so of course. With, with low volume stuff, um, it has to cost more in the end. Per unit. Uh, per unit. And, and, you know, the vendors are not interested in hearing what your estimated annual usage is. They want to know what your, what your next order quantity is going to be. That's the that's that's what they can that's what they can rely on. So how many were we built the first time? Is it is it is it a thousand or is it fifty? You know, if it's fifty, you gotta you gotta say you know, we're gonna make fifty of them. We're gonna do a pilot run. Um, and if you don't have the financing to go beyond that fifty, you gotta be open, honest, so that so that they can budget for that and they can um, consider that in their own in their own objectives. And then you know you may you may have just doubled your tooling cost, but you found a vendor that trusts you and you can work with. 
long-term relationship. Yeah. Yep. And they've made their margin on tooling, so it's it's still it's still worth it for them. Uh, how much more time do you have? Um, I've got another. Let's see. I've got an eleven thirty call. Okay, cool. I'll just go in maybe another five, ten minutes. Is that okay? Yeah, sure. Awesome. I wanted to ask when you were sourcing your first, like your current fulfillment partners, mm-hmm. what were you looking for? We were really looking for um, experience with um, the type of the type of products that we that we make um, or the types of products that we design. And um, we were also looking for a good cultural fit that the owners and operators of those businesses um, had the right um, priorities in mind when they were sourcing their own customers and and when they were delivering things. So um, when you're when you're dealing with uh, offshore vendors, um, you'll you'll deal with a lot of different types of um, of personalities there. Um, someone that had a, had kind of a North American perspective on, on um, quality and delivery uh, was, was very important to me. Um, and so that was part of what, what we were looking for. What do you mean most, by North? Asian, okay, so yeah, like North a, lot, American. a lot of Asian manufacturers are used to being beaten up on price. So mm-hmm. they're usually told that you win based on price because there's a thousand different vendors that they're competing with. To me, um, that's not a differentiation point. Um, and the types of the types of products that we go after, there we don't we don't generally do commodity products. We we do brand new things that are market creators as opposed to market leaders. Um, so in those in those early stage things, the most important thing is not just price. You have to be able to produce something that you know will sell and and uh, reach the market, but. Early stage, the more important things to me are that um, you've got a good working relationship and that the um, understanding of where quality uh, needs to be is is the number one thing. So these are people that are going to work with us to improve the design as as we're doing the design work and um, and are able to deliver um, what they say. Um, and it's going to cost what it's going to cost um, <laughs> in yeah, my I mind. Understand. You know, as soon as yeah. as soon as you start beating people up on price, you lose your ability to um, uh, your your ability to turn the screw in other in other um, regards. I'd love to know if you can tell me about a time where you did not have a good experience with a manufacturer. Sure. Yeah. Um, so very early on when I was, when I was, uh, first going, actually before I went over to China for the first time, um, I was doing, um, a furniture design project and it got some early, um, excitement in the market and we found a couple of customers and, um, the, and there was a a Canadian company or a Toronto based company that was going to carry the product and they introduced me to one of their, um, sources in, in Asia. So I started working with this guy. Um, and then when we were doing our first, and he was fine on the furniture, uh, when we started working in, uh, injection molding, um, went back to that same guy and said, Hey, can you help us out with, uh, with injection molding? He said, yeah, sure. No problem. We, um, started going through a very high profile and very important project for us, um, with him. And it was, we were just having problems and we hadn't, I hadn't actually gone over to audit his processes yet. 
So hopped on a plane, got over there, and um, it was one of those stories that you hear about. You know, it was uh, it was a residential uh, area that we that we went to in Foshan. Um, you know, he had pulled a single injection molding machine off of, the, you know, the back of a truck somewhere and thrown it in like this garage. There was no lighting. There was, um, you know, it was, it was, uh, dirty. There was, uh, it was just, just a complete, uh, complete nightmare. And we had to, we had to pull the tooling budget and quickly pivot to, uh, another vendor, um, that we, that we met on that same trip. Um, but it was, a uh, it was damaging. <laughs> it was a relationship damaging, uh, moments and you know, realize, man, you really don't want to send that much money, uh, offshore to, you know, sight unseen without, without doing a factory audit. So that was, I think that was back in 2006, right. 2007, something like that. Oh man. And do you, um, when you work with, cause there's two parts to fulfillment, there's a manufacturing and then there's the fulfillment itself, like the shipping and then getting into a customer's door. Mm-hmm. Do you, like, does your current manufacturer have a partner or did, how did you get that relationship together with fulfillment meets manufacturing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, most of the um, most of the stuff that we do is um, drop ship to a particular location in North America um, or, you know, to a, a location the customer specifies. Um, in some cases, we've done um, fulfillment straight from Asia, but that's generally working with, um, another, another partner, like a, you know, Shopify or, you know, some, some other vendor that's, um, that works on that, on that fulfillment side. So we're still drop shipping, you know, a, a large quantity of, um, assembled product to a distribution center as opposed to, you know, shipping them out one by one from the factory. Cool. And, Last couple questions. What is one thing you would recommend when people are getting their pricing together? When they're getting, one thing I would recommend when they're getting their pricing together is think of the entire life cycle and the number of number of costs that you're going to have in between um, a prototype delivery and an and initial production run. Um, you it's it's more than just tooling cost parts and material or uh, bill of materials cost and um assembly cost and stuff that is that is one part of it um but you are going to have all of your running costs um whatever you're estimating for the amount of time it takes to produce something you should probably double it and make sure you've got the budget to keep your um keep your staff on board during that whole time uh, a lot of people like to spend money on fun things like, um, uh, you know, pimping out their office and uh, hiring a PR firm and, uh, you know, doing all that fun stuff, making making the image of the company look really good. Uh, all of that stuff does not matter um, to the bottom line. Well, maybe a PR firm, arguably, but <laughs> the the. Um, the in the end, you you have to be able to get to that finish line and and make sure your uh, your running costs aren't too high before you actually start to sell product that's gonna gonna make your company money. That makes sense because um, that's what keeps you afloat. Yep. You know, another big thing that um, people don't like is uh, is regulatory costs. Um, so you know, if you're making anything that um, runs on electricity, um, it is going to require um, certification. Um, in in the states uh, and in Canada and in, in markets abroad, so uh, EMI testing um, for electromagnetic emissions, um, the uh, um, that's like FCC and Industry Canada testing. Um, 
those are all called unintentional emitters. Um, so uh, they have to have Part 15 compliance with FCC to make sure that they don't interfere with things. So all of those things are like, they're not fun. And um, they are things that you have to do in order to get into the markets that you're interested in. And they can introduce um, unexpected delays, especially if you have a problem. Like if you're not passing, then you have to go back to design and try to determine the causes of the failure and fix those problems. So you could have a perfectly working product, but if it's not passing regulatory, you're still in the design stage. And speaking of regulatory, something I learned in our last meeting is I just assumed that products can ship globally, but there's actually a lot of countries that you need to go through red tape with customs and to be able to ship cross-border. Um, I'd love just to touch on that. Like, are those... Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, those are yeah. So yeah, it's always an option to open your crowdfunding campaign up to the, the global market. Um, However, and uh, and some products won't have any issue with that um, if if they don't have high regulatory concerns. Um, but ones that do, you need to consider the cost of compliance in each of those markets. So um, there's there's ways to mitigate those costs with. Um, there's a certification scheme called CB scheme, which is um, designed to, to fit multiple markets at, at the same time. Um, however, um, you should really consider whether or not shipping those 20 pieces to Japan is worth the regulatory burden that you have to meet um, in order to fulfill those. So, you know, it, when you're when you're opening up your market, um, sometimes you need to focus on those on those global markets that sort of have the most bang for the buck. And do you go to a lawyer to find this information, or? Um, no, we use um, we use a certification company um, here in Toronto called uh, TUV Canada, um, and there's there's other ones. There's you know CSA. There's UL. Um, we are generally involved in getting the product certified because the design of the product has to go hand in hand with certification. Um, and, uh, and we've also worked with, um, with uh, certifying bodies offshore as well. Um, the right one, you can, you can involve both. So when you're early on in the design stage, work with uh, onshore vendors. And then when you're later on and getting towards fulfillment, uh, getting, all the, getting all the last certifications done can be offshore. There's nothing a quick Google search can't help you with <laughs> as well. Yeah, um, but yeah, I mean, the as with any vendor, the the relationships with those with those vendors is, is uh, pretty key. So, um, you know, one one big thing I would say is um, don't expect uh, to just fire off emails to to vendors and um, uh, expect a response back. Everybody's super busy, um, especially if they're good, and. Um, getting something in your inbox, you know what that's like, right? Like how, how high does it reach, um, on the priority level? So with my staff, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm constantly reminding them, Hey man, sometimes you gotta, you gotta pick up the phone or you gotta, you gotta get in the car and go over there. You have to, you have to, you know, knock on people's doors, walk in their office and, um, get your, get, get yourself. Home. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, this has been awesome. This has been one of our long, uh, longer podcast interviews, but like, this okay. is <laughs> no, but it's great. And I think we can talk for hours on this stuff. We, yeah, I could go Man. On. So. Hopefully that regulatory stuff wasn't too dull. But no, it's, it's good. Uh, but it's it's important. Yeah. things that you don't know until you're in and you're like, crap, mm -hmm. it's going to cost me 10 grand to get this certification. 
yeah. for something. So it's <laughs> it's good to know everything going into stuff. And um, I just want to know, do you have any famous last words before we wrap this up? Mm, famous last words. Um, choose choose your vendors wisely. Um, work work on the relationships because in the end, this is your life. This is what you're spending your eight hours a day doing or you know, your 16 hours a day if you're a startup. Um, you want to spend it with people that um, are the type of people that you want to be around. You want to build a team and a culture um, that uh, is enjoyable to, to spend, your, spend your time with. Um, and uh, that kind of, that kind of uh, belief is um, something that spreads. It's infectious. So uh, that, can, that can go and, and carry you into, uh, into your vendors and your partners and, and um, building those relationships is, uh, is I think, the most important thing in business. I love it. And I can't agree more because your startup is like your second family. Absolutely. <laughs> or could be yeah. your family. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I spend more time uh, with my family here at Cortex than I do with my family at, at home. Yeah, same. Oh, well. <laughs> All right. Well, Dylan, this has been amazing. Thank you so much. And I'm going to put a link to Cortex Design. Um, They do work internationally, so be sure to hit them up. They do amazing work, especially in the crowdfunding space. So, Thanks so much, Kirsten. And uh, I'm looking forward to to working with you on on this project that we're, we're doing together. Me too. All right, guys, that wraps up another episode. As you know, you can head over to crowdfundinguncut.com. We just released a new ebook, which is focused around how you can build your audience in five simple steps. So don't make the mistake of launching and realizing nobody wants your product. It's actually because you didn't do your due diligence ahead of time and build it. So you could do that. And we also are launching our round two of crowdfunding domination, which is a six-week course. You can join the wait list um, details on site. But apart from that, thank you so much. We love you and cannot wait until next week. Cheers. Are you launching a product on either Kickstarter or Shopify and you're feeling completely overwhelmed with the process? Hi there, my name is Kirsten, the CEO of Launch and Scale. To date, we've helped several online sellers sell millions of dollars online and scale their business from zero to seven figures by focusing on building an audience of fans that will actually convert into paying customers. If you're serious about building a seven-figure e-commerce brand with less time and less risk, you should check out our product launchpad. PLP is a proven accelerator that takes you step-by-step through the process of launching and scaling your product brand. Brands like the Monk Manual, Aberlite, Series Chill, Jamstack, and several others were all launched using our product launchpad. So if you'd like to be our next success story, go to launchandscale.co slash PLP to learn more. And for a limited time, we're offering a seven-day trial of the product launchpad for only $1. Again, go to launchandscale.co slash PLP to learn more.